I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O dot com. Indiana no-tiller Rick Clark has gained some notoriety recently as one of a handful of farmers who's making organic no-till work and on a large scale. Cropping about 7,000 acres near Williamsport, he's intensely focused on building soil health in his diverse system that includes seeding cover crops, planting green, reducing inputs, and incorporating livestock. Acknowledging that he doesn't have all the answers, he nonetheless stresses the importance of challenging the status quo. At the 2019 National No-Tillage Conference, for example, he said, I challenge everyone to get a little uncomfortable. I think you'll like the way it feels. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast series, I caught up with Rick after he hosted a field day on his farm at the end of August 2020 called Regenerative Systems Deconstructed. 250 people turned out for the event and several hundred more tuned in online to hear what Rick and other local experts had to say about his organic no-till operation. Tune in to hear about the equipment he uses, his approach to diverse cropping rotations, the weed outbreak progressions he's seen since going organic, his thoughts on weeds becoming resistant to cover crops, and much more. Hi, this is Rick Clark. I'm a fifth generation farmer from West Central Indiana. We are in transition to 100% organic. And the thing that has gotten us here the probably the most is what I call farming green. And my definition of that is planting the cash crop of corn and soybeans into a living growing green cover crop. And typically we'll terminate right within a day or two of that happening. But with the soybean program, we're up to about 40 days now. We're uh, roll crimping after we've planted. So it's all about soil health, human health, regenerative organic stewardship is what I like to call it. So it's all those things kind of wrapped up. And when I say we're going organic, I mean cover crop no-till. So this is going to be difficult. We don't have all the answers. We've got some of the answers. It's a journey and we're making strides every day. So I feel good about things. Yeah, that's great. And what are you doing rotation-wise for your cash crops and covers? There's a couple of things we have to identify. When is your freeze date? So where we are in this region of the world, West Central Indiana, we're good to plant a species that will winter kill up to about October the 10th, maybe. Got to kind of watch the weather. October 1st for sure. So if you have an opportunity to plant like a cereal rye ahead of soybeans and it's before, say, September 20th, we are going to put whatever diversity we can in that cocktail because we've got time on our side, weather and time. So it's hard for me to sit here and say that we have specific cocktail mixes. It depends on the year and it depends on how you are going to terminate. If you are still in a chemical program, you throw the whole kitchen sink at it because chemicals will take care of anything you're going to plant. 
Now you come back into my world where I'm trying to do regenerative organic cover crop no-till, we have to plant species that we can terminate mechanically. So I don't mean to not answer your question, but it's a moving target. And I think that's the way it should be because we don't want to fall into a monoculture trap of a cover crop package like we do with the cash crop package. Corn, beans, corn, beans, corn, beans. You cannot survive on that. We have to get more crop rotation and more diversity. And so does that apply to the cover crops as well? Someone asked me a question about the effects of cereal rye over and over and over. I don't know. I'm not qualified to answer that question, but I do think that we can get weeds that may become resistant to cover crops. I know that sounds weird, but think about what the plant wants to survive. So if you put a chemical out there, it's going to figure out how to survive with Roundup. It's going to figure out how to survive with dicamba, whatever. I think it could do the same thing with plants. If you are trying to subdue or suppress or kill that plant, it's going to fight for its life and do whatever it can. So I think there could be a possibility that could happen. Have I seen it? No, but you just have to be aware of these things. And so how do you see the weed problem progressing over time? There are a lot of more qualified people that could tell you why is there a foxtail plant growing in my field or why is there a lamb's quarter plant? I don't have those abilities yet and I don't know if, as though I have time to get to there. I mean, John Kemp could tell us all that sure. and John is excellent at that. But yes, they're there. Those are things that we have to look out for. And I truly believe there's a progression here. It's going to start with foxtail or a grass. And you maybe have two years of that. Then you're going to probably progress to a broadleaf problem. Then you're going to progress to a tree, like the maple trees growing. Because we're taking everything away. We're taking all tillage, all chemicals. Everything's gone. So I think we could be opening up those opportunities. But I believe the progression is there. And I'm not worried about it. I mean, I have a lot of examples that I could give. Experience goes along long way in no matter what you're doing your job my what doesn't matter experience is a very crucial asset to have i've got experience that we've had fields in the past that have exploded with mare's tail i don't know why obviously we were deficient in something we were out of balance so you would think that from that point forward we would have a mare's tail problem never saw them again but we don't till anymore so everything's left on top and rodents eat the seeds they decay on their own some sprout and die i mean it's just a total coming down you think you've just unloaded or unleashed a huge amount of seeds, which we have, but if you don't till the ground and leave it alone, I don't think they're going to be a huge problem for us. I mean, I don't mean that to sound naive. I, I know there could be issues, but I think if we abide by our principles, I think we'll be okay. I think we'll be all right. And so how long has it been since you used any chemical fertilizers, pesticides, etc.? I can proudly say this year is the first year in 56 years that we've eliminated all chemicals on the farm. And that I'm the most proud of right there, period. Do we have some weeds in some of our fields? Yes, we do. But they're nothing that I think is out of control or taking away from yield. Now, we've been in the process of eliminating P and K for about six years now. So we have fields in our farm that have not had any P or K for six years and the soil tests are still showing levels that where we were six years ago when we started taking it away. So it's again a validation that what we're doing is correct. We've got these cover crops. And remember, I'd hate to keep saying this, but it's important. We're doing this with no tillage. So I'm relying on the cover crop 
to suppress the weeds. The only way we can do that is to build biomass. And the only way to build biomass is to let the plants grow long into the growing season. If you come out the first warm day of spring and burn everything to the ground with a glyphosate, you're not doing anything toward helping yourself to get to the point of farming green or suppressing these weeds with a cover crop. I talk about the progression of the weeds. There's also a progression that's happened on this farm. When we started down this road of wanting to reduce inputs, the first thing we did was cut the rates of the chemicals we were using. That's the first thing. The second thing is to start to introduce cover crops. Then the third thing is to start planting green into those cover crops and then roll them down later. Now we've eliminated a burn down pass and now you scout to see if you can eliminate the post pass. Now you come all the way into my world of organic and you take it all away. And that's how it all progressed to get to where we are today. Yeah. And so you're really not doing any kind of inputs. Zero. Not even manure? Very little manure. Manure is only in the situations where we've had total removal. So if we grew silage for a dairy or if we grew alfalfa for a dairy and they're coming in, mowing, raking, chopping, and it all leaves the farm, that's bad. So the only way that I know of to get that back in a quick fashion is with that manure. I don't think we can do it with cover crops. It's too hard. The depletion is too quick, too fast to counteract it with a cover crop, but we can bring the manures in, quickly build it back up, and then bring the cover crops behind it, and it all starts to work again. And what kind of manure are you using? Right now, we are using a solid manure from a dairy and also their liquid manure that comes from a lagoon. The solid manure is typically applied at around an 8 to 10 ton per acre rate, and the liquid manure is between 15 and 20,000 gallons. Now, everything is done by IDEM or state chemist specifications. We soil test, then we get analysis of the manure and we determine what our next cash crop is going to be. So what kind of load do we need to have to grow the next cash crop? And whatever those rules are, we abide by the limits and the regulations of those rules. Okay, backing up just a little bit. Tell me more about the 40 days that you're waiting before terminating cereal rye after planting the soybeans. Why 40 days? Okay, Dr. Aaron Silva is out of the University of Wisconsin. Yeah. You know Aaron. Tremendous lady. I was sitting in a room with a couple of friends. We drove six hours to hear this lady speak, and she showed us how to plant beans into cereal rye at boot stage and roll with a roll cramper. I'm like, we got to go see this. Okay, so let's go through it all. So your cereal rye is planted in the fall, and it comes out of dormancy in the spring, and it's growing, and you're looking for a signal from the growth stage. It's called boot stage, flag leaf. When you get to that position, it then is ready to plant the soybeans into the standing cereal rye. You're going to plant green. Cereal rye is maybe three, three and a half feet tall. So it's very easy to get through with your planter at that point. Okay, now the reason why 40 days works is because of this. It's 40 days approximately from that boot stage to anthesis. Okay, but the key here and thesis is when it's the cereal rye is dropping pollen. The lignin is at the highest point and the INJ roller crimper that we have out there will come through and terminate the cereal rye. It lays it flat and then it hits it on those chevrons three or four times as it's rolling over it. It snaps the stalk or the stem. It's over. The plant's over. Within a day, it's turning brown. 
Okay, again, here's a why the 45 days works, 40 to 45. The soybeans cannot be much past growth stage V3. And in that time period, they will not be. So typically you're rolling them when they're at V2 and the beans are very bouncy and springy and they'll just go down and come right back up. And you've laid down this six or 7,000 pounds of biomass and the beans just stand right back up. Now you've got the soil armored. You're reducing evaporation to the atmosphere because the, the soil's covered. You're suppressing weeds. You're feeding the microbes. And if nothing else, you've lowered the temperature of everything underneath that mat by at least 15 degrees. So the beans are happy. Everyone's good. The sun's not beating down on that open soil profile. It's all covered. Now, this is where I, my rule of 70-30 I want the cover crop to do 70% of my weed control. Now it's happening. We've rolled this down. The beans are at V2. I'm on 20 inch rows. I need about 40 more days to get the canopy. And now my canopy is going to be the other 30%. So I need that cover crop that I just rolled down to hold me until I can get the canopy. That's what I think is critical. That's why I'm on 20 inch corn and 20 inch beans and I probably will stay there. If nothing else, we may go even narrower, maybe 15 inch beans, just to get to this canopy quicker. Okay, so talk about your three pass system. The three pass system. I don't know if this is gonna work, but we're sure gonna try. Pass number one is planting the cover crop in the fall. I don't care what tool you use to get that done. I use a John Deere air seeder. That's my preference. I don't care what it is. Just get the cover crop out there. Pass two is in the spring. Let's just stay with the soybeans. Pass two is the no-till planting of the soybeans at boot stage. Pass three is the roller crimper 40 days later and we'll walk away. That's it. So pass one in the fall of cover crop, maybe $20, $25 of expense right there for the cover crop. Let's say 10 for the equipment. So you're at 35. Then in the spring, it's a no-till planter pass. So let's say that's 25. That's what, 60. Then you're going to do a roll down pass. That's another 10. I'm at $70. Now you add in the seed. Beans are going to be $30 an acre for seed. So we are about $70 or $80. So what I'm really trying to strive for is to be a low cost input producer and still have adequate yields to keep the livelihood of the farm going. Okay. So what do you like about the John Deere air seeder? I like its delivery system. I like the air. I've got two tanks. This is an old school air seeder. This is not a CCS one where there's only one tank in the back and you dump everything together. This one, you've got two tanks, so I can now have two different things going on at the same time. I can put my big seeds up front like peas or cereal rye up front, and we can put our very small stuff like the legumes and the brassicas in the back and then they won't settle themselves out. That's one reason why. The other reason is it's the air seeder that we bought. I mean, it just happened to be the one. So I wasn't really looking for anything in specific, but my goodness, this is the tool. It is what we want. Okay, and then what do you like about the planter that you have? The planter that we have is very Deere, right? basic. It's a John Deere. It's what's called a DB60. I think it's a 1770 row unit on a Bauer bar is what that is. But we have to use the Bauer bar because we want to be 60 feet wide and we want 20 inch rows. That's a lot of weight, so it has to be on a special bar. The planter is basically stripped down. There's no no-till coulters. 
There's no row cleaners. It's a double disc opener system from Prescription Tillage Technology, and it's a closing system from Martintail. It's pretty simple. And what I like about it is the Prescription Tillage Technology STP blade eliminates hairpinning. And in case if we don't know what hairpinning is, when you are planting through a lot of residue, you'll have like, say, cornstalk residue on top. Well, hairpinning is when the opener comes through, it takes that slit, you just cut that cornstalk in half and it grabs hold of it and takes it into the seed slot. That's no good because if we drop a kernel of something right there, there's no seed to soil contact. The prescription tillage technology blade actually lifts. So when you walk behind the planter, the residue is actually lifted a little bit because that's the action that it has. It's a serrated tooth blade and it's actually crumbling down the sidewall as it's rolling through the field. So almost three quarters of the seed is covered before we even get to the closing wheel. That's huge. Mm -hmm. So in the world that we live in with these five foot tall cover crops that we're planting into all the time, I need all the closing system and opening that we can get. And that's why it's critical to be using these products. We'll get back to my conversation with Rick Clark in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Rick Clark as he talks about his 60-foot roller crimper and the role it plays in his operation. You have quite a large roller crimper. Yeah, it's 60 feet, 60 feet. It's designed after the Rodale Institute Mm -hmm. with their Chevron pattern, that's the same pattern. And it's made up of how many smaller rollers? Five. So it gives you some contour for the ground to move around with the ground. That's probably my favorite tool. But challenges, again, remember, I'm moving way over toward organic. I don't want to use tillage. So now I'm limited to how are we going to terminate these cover crops. It's either got to be winter kill or mechanical. And that roller crimper is mechanical. So now we've made this even more complex on how to come up with these cocktails. I would love to use chicory. I would love to use canola. I would love to use maybe like barley, but barley, I can roll crimp barley. My point here is I cannot terminate those mechanically with that roller crimper. So how am I going to get rid of them if I introduce them? So I have to come up with other options now. So that's why we do things like we plant cereal grains like wheat so that we're done by July. And instead of double cropping soybeans, we come back with this massive cocktail that will winter kill when winter gets here, like a warm season. So sorghum Sudan, cow peas, sun hemp, sunflower, all of those things are warm season species that we typically don't get to plant in this region of the world. But if you follow your cereal crop with them, they will then be terminated with mother nature this winter. Okay, so in July, you've gone, maybe it's a little too dry in July. Maybe you gotta wait till you catch a rain. Then you put together a six or seven or eight way cocktail that is primarily gonna be warm season species that will winter kill. There are warm center species that won't. So you gotta be careful. So get warm season species that will winter kill, maybe go out in the second week in July, 
and drill those in. Now you're getting yourself prepped and ready for the next cash crop, which in my situation, if we were in this scenario, would be corn in the following year. So now I'm going to go out with my gunslinger and I'm going to put out, that's 30 pounds of haywire oats, five pounds of Balanza fixation clover, five pounds of Austrian winter peas, three pounds of sorghum sudan, and two pounds of radish. The radish, the sorghum sudan, and the oats all winter kill, along with all the other eight species we planted in July. The Balanza fixation clover and the peas you hope will survive the winter because not only have you got it out there early, but you've given it all this protection of the oats and the sorghum sudan and all these things are protecting that clover to get through the winter and then it's going to come out next spring out of dormancy and take off and grow and now we've got the fuel for the corn and we've got the suppressor for the weeds. Yeah and so the clover and the Austrian winter pea you hope they'll make it over winter and then will you let them continue to grow? I will let them go. We will then come in and again, we're back to that three pass system. Now I've added a pass in there because of adding that warm season cocktail. But let's go beyond that. Let's go to the last pass I make in the fall. That's pass number one. We come out, we no-till the corn number two, and then we roll right behind it with that big roller. The big roller will terminate that Balanza fixation clover. Now, what I'm gonna probably need to play with though is by letting these cover crops go this far into maturity, our biomass numbers are off the chart. In this particular example I'm talking about, we got to almost 13,000 pounds of biomass. So it was six, seven, eight, nine inches deep I absolutely covered the corn with that huge biomass mat. That was a mistake. I need to roll this cocktail first, wait a day or two, come in, maybe put row cleaners back on the planter. Again, I told you I'm stubborn, but put row cleaners back on the planter and just gently open that mat up to give the corn a place to come out. Because we plant this seed three inches deep and we just laid eight inches of cover crop on top of it. That's too much. So again, it's not a failure, but it's things that we learn and we have to adapt and make changes. And that's what was so important about today. I wanted today's field day to be a teaching opportunity. And I wanted people to ask me any question that was on their mind. And I think they did. And we had great discussions back and forth. We talked about a lot of different things. And I saw a lot of people taking notes with their pen and paper. And that's what makes me happy. I hope we can just change three or four people today. Yeah. So were there any questions that took you by surprise or anything that was really insightful? There was not any question, but there was a comment that one of my fellow agronomists said that why don't we put cereal rye back in with our corn planting in the fall, plant the cereal rye for the corn next spring. And I haven't wanted to do that because of the carbon to nitrogen ratio and the pest problems that come with cereal rye. Army worms love cereal rye. He threw out to me and challenged me and he said, if you would do that, maybe put 30 pounds of cereal rye with your gunslinger mix, and then next spring, if you would flail chop it, you've changed the carbon to nitrogen ratio and you've possibly altered the pest issue. I think there's a lot of credence to what he has to say. I will not plant a thousand acres like that, but I may do 50. Hmm. So how would that change the pest issue? I think what he's getting at is the pests are probably going to overwinter in this cocktail and 
if we go in and disrupt them with that flail mower at the right time, I think we could then disrupt their life cycle. That's how I took it. It's a neat idea. I don't like cereal rye ahead of corn in the world that we are in now because I don't have a way to feed nitrogen up front. But he threw out a total different monkey wrench of flail chopping or somehow mowing it to the ground, which is great for many things. You're now mulching. It's starting that mulching process. The nutrients are breaking down within those cell walls of the plants. Everything is starting to release and feed that. I'll have to think that through, but that's the one thing that kind of caught me off guard today. And that's a good thing. Well, and speaking of Erin Silva, she and her team are working on spring seeded cereal rye as basically a living mulch. Is that something that you would consider doing? Cereal rye is a, a very funny animal. If you plant it in the fall and it has an opportunity to vernalize, that means go through a cold cycle, it will go ahead and grow to full maturity next spring, four, five, six feet tall, put on a head and do everything it's supposed to do as a reproductive organism. If you plant cereal rye in the spring, after all the frosts and all the freezes are over and you plant cereal rye in the spring, it'll only get about 18 inches tall. And that's what she's doing. So if you have a field that you were not able to get your cover crop into for whatever reason last fall, that is an option to plant maybe two bushel. So that would be 120 pounds. That's probably not enough. It's probably more like 150 pounds, almost three bushels of cereal rye with your soybeans at the same time and they all go together and that's your weed control. I get it, I could see it. I would rather do that than pull a disc out and run a disc. Disking or any kind of tillage and I've come too far in this soil health building process that I don't wanna break it all down with tillage. I just don't. What rates are you using on cereal rye? We're on an incline. We were at 100 pounds last year and it's not enough. It's close, but it's not enough. So I'm going to go to 150. Now that's going to be a lot, but I think that's what we need to hold these weeds all the way through August. That's the problem month for here on this farm. We can suppress the weeds from the time we plant all the way through June, but August is always when the leakers come, what I call them, the leakers start to come out. And then once they get their nose out of the canopy and they get that sunlight, it's over. So what's happened to most of our bean acres right now, now I shouldn't say most, some of the bean acres right now is we've gotten an outbreak of foxtail. But again, this goes back to the progression of where we are with no chemicals. These are second year fields with no chemicals. So I know I mentioned earlier that this is the first year the whole farm's been chemical free, but we're at different phases of the transition. So what I think is happening even on our 20 inch rows, when you run into August, August tends to be a hot month and it tends to be not a lot of rain. So the beans will actually shrink back. And when they've shrunk back, all you need is a little crack for that sunlight to get down. And here comes the foxtail. But here's what I'm happy about, or maybe excited about, is in these fields, there's very few broad leaves. So between, back to my 70-30, between the 70% of that cocktail to hold you to get to the canopy, and then the canopy's holding the late season broadleaves back. That's good news. So it's not like we have a total outbreak of all weeds and any weed across the spectrum. It's foxtail for the most part. Okay, and I noticed you have out there a weed zapper. Yeah, we're using the weed zapper for some foxtail and 
some fields that maybe didn't get a cover crop package like I wanted last year. Maybe it was later, maybe it didn't get any. And then we have these outbreaks of weeds. I mean, the worst fields that we harvested in 19 were the last remaining fields that we tilled. It's the worst fields we had, period. And we even had a chemical program on those fields. Again, I preach about looking for validations. That is a validation to me. If our first time ever certified organic field in this farm's history is cleaner and out yields my old traditional farming type, not traditional, but still farming green, using cover crops, but chemicals to burn down, 28% synthetic in, and some chemicals to control post-season problems, okay? You compared my organic fields to those, the organic fields out yielded them, and they were weed-free. So validation that what we're doing is correct. You need those. Those validations help keep you going. They give you good peace of mind. So since you brought it up, what are your yields? Before we headed down this organic road, we were at a very stable, solid 200 to 205 bushel corn, 60 to 65 bushel beans. Our first year out in organic, our corn yields were 155 and our bean yields were 45. So we slipped about 10 to 15 bushel on beans and we slipped, what, 60 bushel on corn. That may sound like a lot, but when we are selling these commodities at organic level prices, it makes a big difference. Now, our ROIs are the best they've ever been. So we've taken inputs almost to nothing. So you and I need to talk in a couple years and let's see if our organic yields are holding at this 150 level and if our bean yields are holding at this 45. So that'll be the new numbers for us. And you're never gonna hear me talk about yield. Very rarely am I gonna talk about yield because yield is not what drives our system. It's soil health, human health, crop rotations, diversity, all of these things are what drives our system. And finally, it's ROI. Now I know you have to calculate yield to get to ROI, I know you need that. But I mean, when we sit down at the table after dinner and you say to yourself, my gosh, I gotta have 235 bushel corn or we're not gonna farm next year. That's not what I do. That's not what I do. So I enjoy what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. I like to call it a couple things, regenerative organic stewardship. I enjoy being a farmer, but I more enjoy the way I farm. And that really sends it home. I like being a farmer, but I like the way I farm more. So, and I want to teach people and I want to inspire people. I hope in today's field event we had here today, if I can just change three or four people's mindset, it's a success. And then it spreads from there. So I did also notice out there on the field that it looks like you have an in-row crimper. That's from Underground Ag. It is a beta testing process. It is one of their rollers that they've invented and it's set up to go down through the cash crop. So it will terminate cereal rye at the right stage. It will terminate this balanza clover. So it's another way to bring in Let's say I want to do three-pass system, but let's say we need to do a fourth pass. Well, we just laid that Balanza fixation clover down. A week later, I don't like it's coming back up and it's staying up and we didn't get it. Let's hook on the in-roll roller and let's go roll her down. Yeah. That's what we're using that for. So we're working with Dawn slash Underground Ag and we're doing some testing for them and they're trying to get a feel that if this is something that they want to take out to production. 
Okay, let's just pivot a little bit. Livestock, I know it's a big part of your system. Can you tell me a bit about what you're doing? Yeah, I think the livestock is the last piece of this soil health journey. If you truly want to build soil health efficiently and quickly, you need to have the animals on the farm. Just within a year, you can see the change they make. And what we found out today, this is probably one of the most encouraging things I had today. We had Stephanie McLean here. She's our Indiana State Health Soil Specialist. And she and I had a good 20 minute conversation last night about these holes that she had dug and she was finding that there was no compaction from the cattle. That to me was perfect. So that's exactly what I wanted. And that might have been the biggest aha moment of the whole field day because I always worry about all those thousand pound animals walking around and what are they doing to us and to see that the, maybe their destruction is something we just need to not worry about. Now obviously if you get a two inch rain and you dump cattle into it they're going to pug it up. That's obvious. But I don't think it's nothing that we can't undo with more cover crop. We don't need iron to fix these problems. So that really made again validate that what we're doing is okay. It's okay. So how long will you have them out in a particular area? It depends on how many head there are and how big a field we're in. But for the most part, they're in a five or six acre spot for two to three days. But you have to go out and view what they're eating because you don't want them to eat more than 50% of what was there. So you give the plant time, the root system to react, grow, and grab nutrients, grab moisture, and regrow so you can bring the herd back through that paddock again. So there really isn't a set formula other than you have to do it with good grazing management skills and not affect the crops that you have planted. Right. Well, I could ask you a hundred more questions, Rick, but I think we'll wrap it up there because I know you've got things to get back to. Well, I appreciate it. And I can't tell you how important you are and your company and the platform that you're on because this message has to keep resonating. It's gaining traction. And if you folks stop resonating, it's going to quit gaining traction. So thank you so much for doing what you do. Thank you for doing what you do. I really appreciate your hospitality. Yeah, I'm glad you came. Thanks to Rick Clark for joining me today to talk about his regenerative organic stewardship methods. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. <laughs>